Master, uh, fellow old members, it's a great pleasure to be here this morning. In August 1938, William Beveridge went to visit his old friends, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, at Passfield Corner, their home on the Surrey-Hampshire border. Beatrice records the visit in her diary. Beveridge here, in high spirits, thoroughly enjoying his new life as Master of University College, Oxford. An easy job, <laughs> within a cultured and well-mannered group, dignity and prestige, without any particular responsibility or hard work. <laughs> the title of my talk is Beverage the Webs and the Coming of the Welfare State, but when I came the other day to reread the material, I realised that it's also the story of a remarkable friendship, an extraordinary friendship between people whose, I think, reputation for posterity is not always of easy human beings. This talk is work in progress. As William has just said, I'm working on a study of the webs supported by the Web Memorial Trust. I want to say something about the uh, lives of uh, Beatrice and Sydney and of Beveridge, the reports for which they are remembered, and the conventional judgment on those reports, as well as the campaigns they led. I then describe the role of Sydney and Beatrice Webb as friends, patrons, and mentors of William Beveridge, despite their disagreements, and I'm going to end by showing a short Pathé News clip. The conventional view of both the left and the right is that the Beveridge Report in the 1940s follows directly from the work that Webbs did before the First World War, when Beatrice was a member of the Royal Commission on the Poor Law, and Sydney worked closely with her in writing the Minority Report. Beatrice split the Royal Commission. She, uh, she and three colleagues, one of them George Lansbury, the future Labour leader, signed a minority report calling for the poor law to be broken up rather than reformed. And here are the two reports, the, uh, the um, uh, poor law report in 1909 and the beverage report in uh, 1942. Um, the poor, law, the, the poor law itself was, uh, uh, was, was hated. Um, one of the Webb's later associates, Harry Snell, grew up in rural Nottinghamshire. Uh, he, uh, he stood in the marketplace uh, try, at the age of 12 to be hired as an agricultural labourer. He said no human institution was ever more hated and feared by free men than the poor law. Margaret Cole wrote about how she learned to hate the poor law from, uh, from reading Dickens. Clement Attlee learned to hate the poor law from his experience as a young man in the East End of London after he graduated. But the Minority Report was about more than just breaking up the poor law. It raised new ideas, organising the labour market so as to prevent unemployment providing a national health service, operating universal social services. Those ideas foreshadowed the approach of the Beveridge Report a generation later, with Beveridge's idea of attacking the five giants, want, disease, ignorance, squalor and idleness. But there were very important areas of disagreement between Beveridge and the Webbs, both in the First World War period and in the 1940s. Those areas of disagreement, I think, continue to matter today, 
The disagreements make it all the more remarkable that Beveridge and the Webbs sustained a close and unbroken personal friendship for 40 years. They weren't just report writers. The Webbs and Beveridge both led major campaigns. In the pre-First World War period, the National Campaign for the Prevention of Destitution led by the Webbs. In the, uh, the Second World War period, the Social Security League led uh, by, uh, by, by Beveridge. Um, Beatrice emerged as a mass public speaker when she was already over 50. Beveridge emerged as a mass public speaker when he was over 60. Both of them drew huge and enthusiastic crowds. Um, Sidney Webb and, uh, uh, and William Beveridge uh, first elected as MPs when they were already in their 60s. And just a couple of other slides. Uh, the print may be a bit small about the two campaigns. Campaign for the Prevention of Destitution. Beatrice was the secretary, Clement Attlee the meetings organiser, Arthur Greenwood the leads organiser. Going to the Social Security League, by the time of the Beveridge Report, Arthur Greenwood the minister who commissioned the uh, Beveridge Report. Mary Agnes Hamilton, a young Cambridge graduate who was converted by Beatrice's oratory at the time of the Minority Report, by the time of the Social Security League, she had been a Labour MP, she'd been a biographer of the Webbs, she was a civil service member of the, uh, of, of the Beveridge Committee. The Coles, GDH Cole and Margaret Cole, on the fringes of the Webb network before the First World War, uh, both the Webbs and Beveridge saw Cole as a very dangerous maverick uh, through the 10s and the 20s, by the time of the Second World War, um, Cole, a very trusted lieutenant of Beveridge, uh, the vice president of the Social Security League, and the Coles, the, if you like, the keepers of the web flame after they died. So some interesting parallels between the two campaigns, and interesting. Michael Sadler, later Master of University College, a speaker on the platforms for the, uh, the National Campaign for the Prevention of Destitution. Just a couple of quick biographical slides about the two. Here's Beveridge, shot of him, I think in the 1940s, in his period as Master, with the Master's lodging in the background, born in India in 1879. Balliol goes to Toynbee Hall, uh, journalist on the Morning Post, civil servant, uh, and then uh, LSE, and then uh, UNIV after that, and the Beverage Committee. The Webbs, this phrase from a uh, 1920s journalist, A.G. Gardner, the two typewriters that beat us one. Um, the, uh, the pioneers of the LSE and the New Statesman, the Fabian Society, the Labour Party, the period on the Poor Law Commission, and finally the period uh, of enthusiasm for the, uh, the Soviet Union. I think an Edwardian photograph, possibly uh, an Edwardian drawing, possibly an 1890s one. When Beatrice and Sidney met Beveridge at around the time, around uh, 1904, uh, they were at the midpoint of their lives. They'd already achieved a lot. They'd contributed to the uh, evolution of Fabian socialism. They'd published major historical works. Sydney had been a leading member of the London County Council. 
He'd worked closely with the Conservative government to reorganize secondary and technical education, played a major role in higher education. They were also consummate political networkers. Their home at 41 Grosvenor Road, the site of the building we now call the Millbank Tower, was the base of an incredible political sound. Their sometime, sometimes friend H.G. Wells satirised it in his novel The New Machiavelli. Beatrice got together all kinds of interesting people in or about the public service. She mixed the obscurely efficient with the ill-instructed famous and the rudderless rich. Got together in one room more of the factors in our strange jumble of a public life than had easily met uh, that than had ever met easily before. She fed them with a shameless austerity that kept the conversation brilliant. On a soup, a plain fish, and mutton or boiled fowl, with nothing to drink but whiskey and soda and hot and cold water, milk and lemonade. <laughs> Beveridge was twenty years younger than Webbs. In his last year at Balliol. He stayed for two or three nights at Toynbee Hall in London's East End. Not long after he graduated, he was recruited very much against his parents' better judgment, who wanted him to be a lawyer, by Canon Barnett, the settlement's founder, as the sub-warden, taking up the post in the autumn of 1903. And here's the picture of the young men from Oxford at Toynbee Hall in the Edwardian period. He takes up the story in his autobiography. In this Toynbee period, I met for the first time three people, or rather three sets of people, to whom I was to own much through most of my life. These three were Hubert Llewellyn Smith, a former Toynbee resident who was a senior Board of Trade civil servant, his cousin David Mayer and David's wife Jessie, or Janet, and Sidney and Beatrice Webb. He writes about the Webbs. I met them first, I think, late in 1904, when, among other things, I sought advice about a pamphlet on labour exchanges. They did not like me then, but I met them again in July 1905, still through the Toynbee connection, for a weekend with them, CFG Masterman, who was a young Liberal MP, Cyril Jackson, at Cyril Jackson's home in Limpsfield, and I pleased the webs better than before. Beatrice described Beveridge as a leading Toynbeeite. Her diary confirms his own, his own impression. Beveridge, an ugly man, but honest, self-devoted, hard-headed young reformer of the practical type, came out well in comparison with Masterman, and from disliking him, as we had formerly done, because of his ugly manners, we approved him. <laughs> Beveridge rapidly began to specialise in unemployment policy. In the autumn of 1905, he was co-opted to the London Central Unemployed Body, an organisation established in the closing months of the Balfour government to coordinate policy in London. There, he began to develop the idea of the Labour Exchange, establishing a pilot network of exchanges in London. He gave up his job at Toynbee Hall in late in 1905, although he continued to live there a bit longer. Instead, he was hired to write on social policy for the Conservative newspaper, The Morning Post. In his autobiography, he describes a Sunday lunch with the Webbs. He wrote to his mother that a Sunday lunch with the Webbs was always a liberal education. He wrote in the autobiography, I made some remarks about unemployment, which Beatrice tore to pieces with an eloquent expression of her own views. At the end of her harangue, I heard Sidney pipe up from the other end of the table. 
You are absolutely right, my dear, and I agree with every word that you have said. But there is just this in what Mr. Beveridge has said. There followed an exposition of my views in Sydney's language, and a complete acceptance of them by Beatrice. <laughs> she had a mind so full of its own ideas that often she could only take in other people's ideas after pre-digestion by Sydney. <laughs> after that, Beveridge was a regular guest at the Web Salon, where he was introduced to ministers and to civil servants. In the autumn of 1907, he was invited to give evidence on labour exchanges to the Royal Commission on the Poor. Nothing was left to chance. Sidney and Beatrice invited him down to George Bernard Shaw's house at Ajax St Lawrence in Hertfordshire, where they were spending the summer. They spent a morning taking him through his evidence, coaching him and rehearsing him. Beveridge wrote later of the inexhaustible industry and preparedness of the webs. They alone, of all the commissioners, thought of going through my evidence with me. With such thorough preparation, he took the commission by storm. After my dress rehearsal at A.L. St. Lawrence, the performance went well. My friend of Charterhouse and Oxford days, Phelps, then Provost of Oriel, wrote to congratulate me on my evidence. It impressed everyone, not a little. The chairman said, I shall keep my eye on that man. After that, Beveridge noted, when they reported 15 months later, the whole commission blessed labour exchanges wholeheartedly. By early 1908, Beveridge had not only convinced both factions on the Royal Commission about labour exchanges, he had convinced Sydney and Beatrice. In February of that year, he and Sydney were exchanging drafts. They disagreed about details, but agreed about the substance. On February 13th, Sydney wrote to Beatrice, well, Sydney wrote to Beveridge to say that the scheme will be pressed forward and in due course boomed. By March, writes Beveridge, the Webs had decided that the time had come to pass from propaganda for labour exchanges to action at the source of power. On March the 11th, Beveridge dined at 41 Grosvenor Road with Winston Churchill, who was then the Undersecretary at the Colonial Office and another junior minister. The talk was all of unemployment. Beatrice had already sent Winston the Webb's version of what labour exchanges should do. A month later, Asquith became Prime Minister, Churchill became President of the Board of Trade, then responsible for labour market policy. According to Beveridge, his first official act was to send down to the Labour Department for literature on labour exchanges. Beatrice advised Churchill, if you are going to deal with unemployment, you must have the boy Beveridge. <laughs> and there's young Winston at the Board of Trade in 1908. And that is what happened. Beveridge was appointed to the Board of Trade in July 1908, and a year later became its first Director of Labour Exchanges. There was a special minute of the Privy Council to exceptionally appoint uh, Beveridge as an established civil servant without the full procedures to put him straight in, into this new role. Llewellyn Smith, the second of his timely friends, was closely involved in the appointment. He remained a, uh, an established civil servant for the next 11 years, and there is one of those early 1910 labour exchanges. By the time Beveridge became a civil servant, Beatrice and Sydney were already hard at work drafting the minority report. Beveridge's new status as one of the government's leading advisers on unemployment did not immediately disrupt his relationship with the Webbs. At the end of July 1908, he attended the Fabian Summer School on the Welsh coast, signing himself in as W.H. Beveridge, ex-journalist. 
his Balliol friend, R.H. Tawney, who had just become engaged to Beveridge's sister and was about to take over Beveridge's job at the Morning Post, was one of the main speakers on unemployment. In the autumn, when the minority report was finished, Beatrice sent it to Beveridge in draft. He wrote back from his private address in Kennington, with the report as a whole, I agree entirely, so much that I have really no criticism to make at all. After that, however, their paths diverged for several years. The Webbs advocated a policy of prevention. The government, with Churchill and Lloyd George as the leading ministers, instead laid the foundations of the national insurance system, Beveridge working on unemployment insurance. Beatrice, and to a lesser extent Sydney, were against insurance. It put the state in competition with the trade unions for the workers' money, and it paid out benefits without imposing conditions about future behaviour. Opposition to national insurance brought Beatrice into an uncharacteristic alliance with those like Hilaire Belloc, who opposed the growing role of the state. When they legislated for national insurance, ministers went about gloating that they had dished the webs or spiked their guns. Other people from the web network, who had been assistant commissioners or researchers for the Royal Commission, or activists within the national campaign, were drawn into the administration of labour exchanges and national insurance. Churchill used the webs as a sort of labour exchange of his own, saying he would take on anyone Beatrice really recommended on my own. Clement Attlee, having worked as the meetings organiser for the campaign for the prevention of destitution, took a temporary job as an explainer for the National Insurance Act before being appointed in 1912 by Sydney to a post at the LSE to train social workers. When the war came, Beveridge remained a civil servant, while Sydney became more and more involved in the labour movement's response to the war. Beveridge and many other of the Board of Trade civil servants concerned with labour market policy moved across to the new Ministry of Munitions. When Lloyd George became Prime Minister at the end of 1916, Whitehall was reorganised with the creation of a Ministry of Labour and a Ministry of Food. Beveridge by now had alienated many trade unionists was sent to the new Ministry of Food. His contact with the Webbs seems to be limited in the first three years of the war. But Lloyd George put uh, Beatrice on a committee on post-war reconstruction, and she invited Beveridge to a dinner at uh, Grosvenor Road in 1917 for a quiet talk about demobilisation. He probably came. It's difficult to imagine who else could have been the source for a story she tells in her diary in, for February 22, 1917, about the Minister of Food, Lord Devonport, who got so suspicious of his leading official, our old friend Beveridge, that he entered his room in his absence, seized the morning's correspondence, destroyed some of it, answering other letters himself. At the end of the war, Beveridge's future in the civil service was uncertain. He was still with the Ministry of Food, but its own prospects were obscure. He was not personally in favour with Lloyd George. Meanwhile, in the spring of 1919, Sydney began the task of reorganising the London School of Economics after the war. Beatrice wrote in her diary, For this purpose, he had to undertake the unpleasant task of telling an old friend, Pemba Reeves, that the time had come for him to resign the directorship. Sydney suggested to Beveridge that he should apply. By June, the chairman of the LSE governors, Arthur Steele Maitland, a Conservative MP with an interest in social reform, who the Webbs knew from his time as an assistant commissioner on the Poor Law Commission, had gone off on, on holiday to Italy, leaving Sydney a free hand in the appointment of a director. Beatrice writes, Beveridge was Sydney's choice and he has been appointed by the governors. He has his defects. 
He is not the sweetest tempered of men and has a certain narrowness of outlook, but he is a good administrator, an initiator of both ideas and plans, and a man who will concentrate his energies on the school. Our relations with him are pleasant and friendly. His views are slightly anti-Labour but pro-collectivist, and he is an innovator, not a conventional-minded man. Uh, moreover, there was really no alternative. <laughs> Beatrice and Sydney were pleased with their choice. Two years later, Beatrice reported that the London School of Economics, Sydney's favourite child, is brilliantly developing under the able direction of Beveridge, whom Sydney selected. While he was a wartime civil servant, Beveridge had employed Jessie Mayer, the third of the Toynbee friends, the wife of his cousin David Mayer, initially as his private secretary and subsequently in more senior roles. At the Ministry of Food, she rose to be the head of baking rationing. According to Beveridge's biographer, when Sidney was appointing him as director of the LSE, he acknowledged that Mrs. Mayer was, quote, the price he would have to pay for attracting him to the job. Within six months, Mrs. Mayer had indeed followed Beveridge to the school. She remained latterly as assistant director until he left for University College in 1937. From time to time, staff, students, and even Beatrice speculated, sometimes overexcitedly and sometimes prudently, about the nature of their relationship. Sydney, characteristically, was calmer, responding to one set of allegations in these words. It is always useful to have gossip brought to notice, though it is seldom accurate and always exaggerated. Beatrice was more troubled by the situation. As early as 1927, she refers in her diary to the Beveridge Mayor dictatorship. In 1928, she was advising Mrs. Mayor that she and Beveridge had, quote, better not travel to the USA on the same steamer. Where Beatrice agonised about morality, academic staff at the LSE, right across the political spectrum, accused Mrs. Mayer of interference in academic business. In the summer of 1936, the chairman of the LSE governors came for a weekend with the Webbs at Passfield Corner. Beveridge wanted Mrs. Mayer's contract extended beyond retirement age. The academic staff were insistent that it should not be. The Webbs backed the professors and the governors. The crisis continued for the rest of the year. Beatrice records the end game in her diary entry for New Year's Eve 1936. The last day of the year, we had a painful visit from Beveridge. He and Sydney had a long interview during which Sydney spoke of the impossible situation at the school. Beveridge said he had never heard of the scandal. But he looked tragic after the interview, and though there was no further discussion and I was not involved, the rest of the visit was painful. After that, the deal was done between Sydney and the governors, with the acquiescence of the academics. A one-year extension of contract for, Ms. for Jesse Mayer, followed by Lee. In April 1937, Beveridge wrote to Sydney to tell him that he had accepted the mastership of University College. So in 1908, the Webster introduced Beveridge to Churchill before he went to the Board of Trade. In 1919, Sidney hired him for the LSE, and in 1936-7, he fired him and brokered the deal. Before the First World War, Beveridge and Webbs had disagreed on national insurance. By the 1930s, the main focus of the Webbs' policy interest was the Soviet Union. Beveridge did not share their enthusiasm for Russia. By the time the Beveridge report was published in the last months of Beatrice's life, 
Beatrice, in her pro-Soviet phase, questioned whether unemployment could ever be solved under capitalism. The report appeared in November 1942. On 6th December, Beatrice wrote in her diary that it was based on what seems to me a radically false hypothesis, that it is consistent with the continued existence of the capitalist and landlord as the ruling class. Writing for Cooperative News, Beatrice restated her opposition in the same terms as she had in 1911. Where I differ fundamentally from the Beverage Report is in the attempt to deal with poverty resulting from mass unemployment by an insurance system involving weekly payment to all unemployed persons. But remarkably, throughout all this, Beverage and the Webs remained friends. In the spring of 1936, they spent a holiday together in Mallorca. Beverage's presence, noted Beatrice, adds to the pleasure and interest. And so it did. He was reviewing the Soviet communism. He was contemptuous of Keynes on unemployment. They discussed many other issues. They must have been bracing holiday companions. <laughs> Quote, he complains that there are no statistics in our book. Parentheses, if there were, he would say they were faked. Quote, Beveridge is kindly, amusing and very clever. To those whom he likes personally, and even to those he meets casually, he is a charming companion. But to those he directs, but who regard themselves as colleagues and not as subordinates, he is tactless. The next summer, Beatrice and Sydney held a huge family party at Passfield Corner for more than a hundred members of her extended family, the descendants of her eight siblings. Apart from family, only a handful of their oldest friends were invited. George Bennett Shaw, Harry Snell and Arthur Ponsonby, Sydney's colleagues from the House of Lords, and Beveridge. And here's their invitation to it. It's not very easy to read the very old Beatrice and Sydney and their invitation, the webs at home as they enter their ninth decade. I began with Beveridge's visit to Passfield after he had taken up the mastership of Europe. On that same visit in the summer of 1938, Beatrice noted that it was 31 years since Beveridge had come to see them at A.L. St. Lawrence. Ever since that time, we have been loyal friends to each other, and certainly to his attitude to the old webs has been extraordinarily kind and appreciative. Ideal good manners, which in other relationships he has lacked. David Mayer, who had latterly gone to live in Australia, died in the summer of 1942, shortly after the publication of, uh, in the summer of 1942, shortly after the publication of the Beveridge Report. Beveridge married Jesse Mayer, and Beatrice wrote to congratulate them. I sent him warm greetings on his marriage to his lifelong companion and long-continued colleague in research and administration in the public interest. Beveridge replied warmly, sending greetings from himself and Jesse, but they did not meet again. Beatrice, increasingly confined to Passfield, died in April 1943, while Sidney, who lived on until 1947, was increasingly restricted by the effects of a stroke. I'm going to conclude with a short Pathé news clip made in 1960 to commemorate the 50th anniversary of labour exchanges, which ends with a few words from Beveridge himself.
reopens on the jubilee of labor exchanges. In the presence of Minister of Labor Edward Heath, the exchange began bringing employee into contact with employer without delay. In the old days, how nearly impossible that often was. The 50 years history of the exchanges included almost 20 years of hunger and unemployment. The decades without hope. Those evils must never return. 